Today's scripture is John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Hello, Redemption Tucson. My name is Dave, the lead pastor at our congregation. And while myself and a number of other men, including the other, other pastors from our church, are away for a soul care weekend, LLM, you are in great hands this morning. Josh Yasuda, the kids pastor at Redemption Gateway, who actually went here to the U of A and uh, was excited to come and to, to preach to our congregation. He's a great guy, a godly man, and, and I'm excited for him to open up the scriptures for us this morning. So will you all please put your hands together and welcome him up. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me this morning. Uh, that is true. I went to the University of Arizona. Uh, that's right. Look at that. See, I tell you what, I can't say that up where I am. Uh, you know, basically, it's like, uh, I remember the first time I spoke at Gateway, I said, I went to the U of A, and like one lady was like, woo! And that was, everyone else was just like, move along, move along. You know, like, it's kind of that, but that's all right. I'm used to it. My wonderful wife went to ASU, and that's just fine. That's just fine. That's right. See? Uh, so anyway, so I went to U of A um, from about 2002 to 2006, and then I've uh, been up in uh, the Mesa, Gilbert, Chandler area since then. Uh, we, are, we have been a part of Redemption for the better part of seven years. We were at Redemption Gilbert for a little while, uh, and then i am recently been on staff at uh, Gateway uh, for the first time, and uh, I'm the kids pastor there. And so I oversee uh, zero through fourth grade, and it's just a ton of fun uh, being there and leading the team. And uh, I am privileged and honored to be able to speak uh, God's word and share God's word with you. Um, if you're new uh, to Redemption, uh, we kind of teach book through book, uh, and that's kind of how we go. Sometimes we'll take a stop and we'll do a kind of a series on uh, some topics that uh, we feel are important. But we've been in the Gospel of John for, I don't know, a pretty long time, would you say? Yes, if you've been here for a while. And so uh, I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we're going to get into the Gospel of John as we're getting close to wrapping up uh, the Gospel of John here in the next few weeks. So let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to open your word with brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, I thank you that we're one church, um, and while uh, we are here in Tucson, we're still all worshiping the same God throughout Arizona uh, this morning, uh, and so I just thank you for that, Lord. It's a grace. It's a gift. 
Um, and I pray this morning that we would be blessed by your grace and blessed by uh, your goodness that we find in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, where we are in the Gospel of John, as we just read in John 19, 38 through 42, if this is like your first time joining us, uh, we kind of got to set the scene, you know, like if you were reading the book, you probably wouldn't have stopped here, you know, if you were reading a really good book, and I think the Gospel of John is a really good book, but you, you find yourself, you know, wanting to keep reading, and, and the place where we are is we're, we're just after Jesus' crucifixion, and now we are at his burial, and a lot of us want to just like skip this part and we just want to get to the resurrection because we live in 2022 and we know what happened and we have the scriptures and we're like, okay, great, he's buried, but now in the next paragraph he's going to rise. And so I like that. But this morning we're going to sit in this moment, which is in John 19, which is almost like a funeral setting, if you will, right? Like there's this suffering and death and there's a lot of somber attitude. If you kind of put yourself in the shoes of Joseph and Nicodemus, this is not easy work that these men are undertaking to do, and there's probably not a lot of smiling happening. Because you and I in 2022, with the scriptures in hand, we're sitting here thinking like, this is sad, but we know what's coming. Like, Sunday's coming, resurrection's coming. So we look at it in that sense. And we even do that in our own funerals now. Uh, I had the opportunity uh, to uh, kind of oversee and do the burial uh, ceremony of my wife's grandfather. And that was just last year. Uh, he died due to COVID. And uh, we uh, got to be there. Uh, we, we got to have a burial ceremony. And I got to be there. And it's one of those things. It was a really kind of honor, honoring thing. Like, I was really privileged to be a part of it. Um, because if you've been a part of a burial service, you know, and just even attended a burial service, it's, it's sad. There is uh, some grief and, and tears that are being shed, but uh, also there, you're standing in the midst of a bunch of family members, and you're sharing the good news of the gospel, and you're saying, just like we're laying him in the ground, he will one day rise. And that is what we believe, right? Like Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, right? Like in the end, he's going to raise all people up. And so there's this element there. I don't know if Nicodemus and, and Joseph get that same feeling, though. They might have based off of their theological convictions um, as Pharisees and whatnot. But there's still this sorrow that's taking place, and it's heavy. And that's kind of where we find ourselves. But in the midst of the sorrow, even in this passage, we see life. We see faith, and we see devotion, and we see that our God is a God who uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things for his glory. I'll say it again. Our God is a God who uses extraordinary or ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things for his eternal glory. And sometimes we skip by this passage, but I've been blessed by this passage, and I want to kind of dig in, and I want to ask just a few questions about the passage and see kind of where that leads us. And so this morning, first is, who is Joseph of Arimathea? So Joseph of Arimathea shows up on the scene right after the crucifixion of Jesus, but we don't find him at all in the midst of this whole gospel until right now. And the same is true of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You don't find Joseph of Arimathea until you get to the end of the crucifixion and Jesus is going to be buried and up on the scene shows up this guy and his name is Joseph and he's Joseph of Arimathea. And he's in all four Gospels, which is fascinating because that doesn't happen all the time. 
right? Uh, each gospel has a different lens to it as to which it's being shared and how it's being communicated or how the gospel is being communicated in there. And so we get this guy who shows up in all four. And if, if you have the time, you would be blessed in looking at how each gospel portrays Joseph because they all portray him in a, a positive way, I think, right? So uh, a couple of things about him. Matthew says that he was a rich man, and he was a disciple. He was a member of the council. Um, Mark says that he was a respected member of the council. So the council, uh, just for those who were uh, kind of are wondering, it's the Sanhedrin. It's that 70 people who kind of were the guys who like were like, yeah, Jesus, you're going to Pilate. You know, so like that, that group of people, that's who Joseph is a part of. And it says, uh, Mark also says that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. Luke says that he was a good and righteous man. He was a member of the council, and he was looking for the kingdom of God also. And then Luke also adds a point that he didn't consent to the council's decision. And then when we look at our text in John, John 19, 38, John also says he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And as you kind of look through these things, I just want to draw out a couple of them and kind of just see, like, who is Joseph? So first, right, in John's text, he says he's, he's a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And we might say, like, ah, he's a follower of Jesus, but he's kind of quiet about it, maybe. Like, maybe he's ashamed of it a little bit. Maybe, you know, like, we might put our kind of, like, own spin as we read maybe the text and we might read into it. I don't necessarily know if that's what's happening. I think he is a respected member of the council. And like many of us in our own workplaces, we would find that we have to navigate creatively about how we might share our faith. Or, hey, I'm wrestling with these truths that Jesus is saying. And some of the people that are on the council, as you read the Gospels, they're like, this guy is a heretic. Don't follow this guy. He's stirring up the city, right? And then there's other guys. Even John says it in John chapter 12. He says that there were people, Pharisees, people, part of the Jews, who did agree to what Jesus was saying and who did follow Jesus, but they wrestled with kind of the glory of God and the glory of man. So, like, this isn't the first time that we're hearing that Pharisees are following Jesus or trying to seek out Jesus in a way that's honoring, uh, in a way that's devotion-filled. But he's secret. And we can, we can identify that. This kind of like humanizes Joseph to us. You know, like when you're thinking about your own relationship with the Lord and how do I make my faith public to people around me versus when I don't make my faith public and I'm wrestling with how do I share Christ maybe in the workplace or how do I live a godly life in the midst of other people who may not love Jesus. This is kind of like where Joseph's at. You know, he, he is secretly for fear of the Jews, he, there's this culture around him that doesn't like Jesus. We get that. We get it. And he's like, how do I navigate that? But what we will see is at some point his faith comes out into the light a little bit. Other things they say is uh, the gospel say he's a rich man and a respected member of the council. I just find that fascinating that he is a part of the group of people who sent Jesus to Pilate to be killed. The guys he's on the board with are the ones who are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And he's sitting there like, no, I actually don't want that to happen. It'd be interesting to see how that like not consenting works back then. Like, did he have to tweet it? You know, like, I do not agree with what's about to take place, but these guys are going to do it. You know, like Twitter thread, you know, like 
30 things you have to read. You're like, I'm tired at like slide two, you know. But nonetheless, like how was that non-consent? It doesn't matter. Luke says he didn't consent to the decision. He didn't agree. He was a righteous and godly man looking for the kingdom. And I just love this. Like when you really kind of start asking questions of like who is Joseph of Arimathea, you start to find that he is this picture of grace. Like, like that there is not a sim- single person who is outside of the love and the grace of God and the call of Jesus to follow him, right? Like, he is this guy who is a disciple, right? Don't miss what John says. He might have been for secretly for fear of the Jews. He might have been a part of this council. But what does John and Matthew, they all say, he was a disciple of Jesus. He's known as a follower of Jesus. He's in the following Jesus line. Doesn't matter what place he's in. He might be in the very back of the line, but he's still in the line, And that's good news to you, and that's good news to me. That's good news to us, because following Jesus isn't about my performance, but it's about what he did. Following Jesus is about a gift of grace, responding to the call of grace and love and to lay down my life and follow him. And everybody is welcome in that invitation. And Joseph might have some questions, like if we were like doing a resume, be like, I don't know if he fits. Guess what? Jesus said he fit, and he invited him in. And so he's a rich man. He's a respected member of the council. And the beauty is, is that when you start to kind of really read the gospel in its entirety, like, and I think we sometimes miss this if we just look at it in the chunk, but if we kind of follow all of John 19, like, who is at the cross and who is at the burial? Like, there's this beautiful group forming of the diverse people. Right? You have these disciples who've been with Jesus. You also have all these women who have loved and followed Jesus. And now you got some members of the council that are actually like, they were the enemies, but now they're burying him and showing love and devotion towards Jesus. Like there's this beautiful group, and grace creates this beautiful group of diverse people from different walks and backgrounds, and they're all following Jesus. And the message for us today is the same, that God is going to use a collection, a beautiful collection of ordinary folks to be a part of his people who then are on mission with him for his glory. And that's an amazing thing we see in this passage. The last thing I'll I'll say is, I love how it says that Joseph was looking for the kingdom, that Mark and Luke, they tell us that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. Uh, one of the things that, at my wife's grandfather's burial that was, it was like, a, you know, you kind of have those moments in a year where you're like, that was a pretty, pretty kind of like a kind of moving moment or uh, that forced me to think about things that I don't normally think about. And that was the first time I had ever done like a funeral burial thing. Um, that, that was hard in and of itself, especially when it's for a family member that you knew and loved. But then also at the burial, the thing that rocked me the most was my wife's grandma's still here uh, with us, but she has her own plot next to her husband, like already picked out. That might have been the most sobering moment for me, especially, I don't know if people, uh, in my, I'm 37, I have a couple of kids, you know, I've been married for 13 years almost. You're like, I'm not really thinking about when I'm leaving, but then when you're standing there next to a wonderful lady who has her plot picked out and she knows where she's going to be laid to rest. It's like a much more sobering moment. 
And Joseph is kind of enacting this moment, right? Like it, it, it's uh, in <clears throat> Luke, uh, or I think it's one of them says, one of them says that this tomb that they're going to lay Jesus to rest in is not just any tomb, but it's this, it's this tomb that's been cut out of rock. So kind of like picture, there's a giant stone, and somebody just had did some really hard work to kind of carve out this rock, turning it into a cave, basically. And then there's going to be this like kind of bench that's in the middle of it where they're going to lay the body on it. And it's not just a tomb that's never been used before, but one of the gospel writers tells us that it's actually Joseph's tomb. Like he's staring at the place where he would be laid to rest. Right? He's staring at it, and he's like, this is it. And so Jesus gets crucified right near the garden where this tomb is, and he does what? He goes and he asks Pilate for the body. So he takes courage, and he goes and asks Pilate for the body. Then he shows this amazing generosity, because it was not cheap to have this kind of tomb. And so he then now gifts this tomb that never was used before, that cost a ton of money, and he's going to put him where he was going to go. So instead of Saving it for himself, he gives it away to Jesus. And so G- John, or Joseph is looking for the kingdom. And I think one of the fascinating things is that people who are looking for the kingdom, like this morning you might be here and you say, I don't follow Jesus, but I'm looking for the kingdom. You, you might even say, my life is still a little different than it was yesterday or it was a week ago when I started being interested in going to church and I started being interested in being around uh, these people who confess Christ. Because I feel like as Joseph is looking for the kingdom, notice the descriptors throughout all the Gospels. He's a good man. He's a righteous man. He is looking for the kingdom. He's not consenting to, like, this murder of an innocent man, right? Like, and now he is exhibiting just huge generosity. He starts to look like the kingdom as he is in search of the kingdom. He starts to take on the characteristics of the kingdom, as he now is moving in towards following Jesus. And the beautiful thing is that he was looking for the kingdom, and he found the king of the kingdom. And he became a follower of the king. And he starts to exhibit the traits of the king, of courage and faith and generosity, just like the king that he's laying to rest in the ground. Joseph and Nicodemus are these beautiful pictures of people who are searching for God, that are seeking the kingdom of God and are now stepping into the light. Right? But the question is, is like, why are they stepping into the light? Like, what made them step into the light of day? Because the burial of Jesus is not happening at nighttime. Right? So, like, there's the crucifixion that happens. Jesus dies, breathes his last, says it is finished, gives up his spirit. Right? And then they went to go break his legs to try to kill him or to make the death process be faster, but they already found that he was dead. And then if you notice in this text, it says this, that they, on verse 42, he says, So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Like, the Sabbath day is coming where no work can happen, and that happens at sundown. And so they got this tiny window to do some work to get Jesus buried, and so these guys are going to do it in the light of day. So what makes them kind of step into the light? Well, verse 38, uh, it says, After these things, right, uh, Joseph asked Pilate that he might take away the body. I love this. Like One of the gospel writers, I think Mark says in chapter 15, verse 43, he says that Joseph took courage. Right? Like there, 
there must be a lot of courage that it's going to take. So even in the midst of Joseph's fear of the Jews, he's still taking courage, right? Like fear is not taking a hold on him. He's going to take courage and ask for the body of Jesus. Throughout all of the Old Testament, you can look at a, a number of different accounts in the Old Testament of people taking courage to bury the body and care for the body of a loved and respected member of the community. Right? People did it with Saul. There's just a handful of times where we see people taking great courage to go bury a body out of respect and honor. So, but now Joseph has to make himself known. Like what he was as a disciple of Jesus, maybe a little bit behind the scenes, kind of becomes a little bit more in full light because they really would have only released the body uh, to his family members. But they also really would have uh, actually not given the body away because the thing that Jesus was, you know, killed for was essentially treason, right? That he's professing to be a king uh, over Caesar, right? And so we kill all treason. So, so in the sense, they would have normally taken those kind of people and they would have taken their body and they would have just thrown them in a mass grave and left it to die. Or they would have just left the body up there to hang and, you know, that'd be kind of gross. So it took courage, and it also was interesting that Pilate would give him the body. So somehow Joseph was prepared for this action, uh, whether it was through his connections or his influence, or even just maybe Pilate didn't agree with the sentencing. He's like, yeah, take the body. And so they take the body, but the gentle and careful loving attention to the body of Jesus that Joseph provided was now done in the light of day. But he wasn't alone, right? He wasn't alone. He had Nicodemus. Nicodemus, in verse 39, also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That is a lot. I don't, I, 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 I'm, I don't know anything about um, kind of like uh, Jewish burial customs, but in a little bit of research, I found that 75 pounds is a lot. Uh, I, I also... Uh, you know, like, it's, it's just a lot, uh, and um, uh, typically, uh, you would not have been buried with that much spices and, and, and aloes, and so uh, what they would have done is they would have taken these strips, and they would have put all that spices on there, and then they would have wrapped his body in that, um, you know, however that works out, but this is enough for the burial of a king, right? So, like, there is in this moment, like, the respect shown to Jesus' body and the courage taken by Joseph and the amount of spices that Nicodemus brings, these guys are now showing that they believe Jesus to be who he says he was, right? Like, they believe that Jesus is the king. Like, they are offering allegiance and devotion to somebody that they cared about. And they're showing it in their outward actions of courage and generosity and now with the amount of spices that they're bringing. They know who they're burying. They're burying a king. But I love John as a writer. Like, it, it, if you just get the chance to, to read kind of the Gospel of John in, in like a long form, just maybe one or two sittings, you know, you kind of start to see a little bit of these details that John, the author, is giving us. And he says in verse 39, he says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, Right, like a good author, he now hits us back to kind of like, well, Nicodemus has been around for a second, right? Like Nicodemus has shown up in chapter 3, and then Nicodemus made a comment at one of the councils to say like, hey, shouldn't we hear this guy out? And they're like, who the heck do you think you are? Get out of here. You know, so the question of like, 
who, what made them step into the light might be found a little bit more in that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And in chapter 3 of John, Jesus and Nicodemus are having this conversation at nighttime because Nicodemus is curious about who Jesus is, but he's not sure, and so he comes in the cover of night. And Jesus says this to Nicodemus, and he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The lifted up means how he's going to die, right? Lifted up on a cross. And John has used this language, Jesus used this language throughout his ministry that he would be lifted up. And then John says later, Jesus says later in John 12, 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When world events happen, right, whether we like it or not, we're affected by them and our lives get shaped by them. Um, some of you uh, probably could rattle off some dates about world events that happened. Uh, you know, then I, I can remember one. Uh, it was my senior year of high school. It was September 11th, 2001. My mom comes in. I'm like sitting eating breakfast. I was like, turn TV on right now. I'm like, okay. We turn, and it's just enough time to see the second airplane kind of crash into the World Trade Center. And from that moment, we didn't know it, but, like, life at an airport, for lack of a better place, like, that is different. And it's forever different. But a lot of other areas of life, people were affected by that. Even, you say, March 11th of 2020. Life as we know it has been shaped radically by March 11th. Like, when world events happen... Whether we like it or not, we end up getting impacted, influenced, and we have to adjust our lives. Jesus' death and resurrection is a world event that not only affected the people who watched it, but it is still affecting people to this day, 2,000 years later. The death and resurrection of Christ is this amazing event where Jesus says, and when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. The manner in which he dies is his glorification. For John and the gospel writers, this is his moment of glory. And the burial of Jesus is not this like humiliation account. It's the beginning of his exaltation. To be the king who he is. R.C. Sproul says this is not a humiliation account. This is the beginning of his journey to exaltation. To rise from the grave. So who has the power to change your life, right? What would make you or what would have to change or force you to step out into the light of day with your faith a little bit more? That kind of stuff doesn't come from within us. That has to be acted on outside of us by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And the one thing that happens to change our lives is not me, it's not you, but it is the work of God in our life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As he draws us in to see his beauty, as he draws us into following him, as he draws us into faith, as he draws us into obedience, our lives get radically changed, and we too start looking like the king. And the last thing is this, is what story are you a part of? I just, I, I, I love the way John writes this, that, that you've got these two guys that are a part of the, you know, council 
that usually, I mean, we would think they're not allowed to be in the following Jesus group, but they are a part of the group. I mean, this is just like why God is a much better story writer than I am. I, I have two daughters. They're four and they're two. Um, sometimes, if we're lucky, we get to do bedtime, like, with a book. Uh, other times, they just run around their room like wild banshees, and I just am like, guess we're not reading tonight, you know? Kids are going to be illiterate, you know? Like, I don't know. Like, I just, just like, I don't know. So then recently, I've tried to, like, I'm going to tell a story. But I don't know about you, but I am out of practice with my storytelling, or maybe I've never had practice. I'm just like, hey, let me tell you a story, and they, like, pause, and they're like, what? And so then... My stories suck. Like, they just are not good. They, my stories are, like, final, or they just have, like, terrible detail. It's like every time we're getting lost in the woods, and somehow they just stay lost. Like, no, but there's no resolution. It's bad. Uh, but, like, in life, too. Like, I think, like, if I were, I think of some of my relationships and places where God has me. Like, if I'm writing this story, like, a lot of these relationships and a lot of these stories would be final and done. I would enact judgment. I would be like, this is over. There would be less grace and less mercy in the midst of my story writing in life. Yet that's not who God is. And he's the one writing this story. And there's this amazing thing that these two guys are interested and curious. They want to know who Jesus is. And then at some point they end up following him. And they're kind of trying to wrestle with how do they come out and, and tell people about their following Jesus. And it shows up here, but they were never told not to be a part of the group. And I love this, that God is using ordinary folks to do an amazing and extraordinary thing for his glory. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this in verses 3 and 4. Paul's writing to the church. They got a lot of problems, but he still loves them and is encouraging them, and he tries to point them to the thing that matters the most. And he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received. And then he shares the gospel. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. One thing I find that's fascinating about this is that he says, right, like this is of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that Christ was buried, and then he rose from the grave. Like, let's not forget the fact that he was buried, and then he came out on the third day and rose from the grave on the third day. These men get to be a part of this gospel narrative, right? They get to take part in the story. Like, this is fascinating to me, right? Jesus is dead. He can't bury himself. He's not the one doing it, but God is taking these men who probably don't belong in the group, he makes them a part of the group by his love and his mercy and his grace, and then he uses them to be a part of this gospel narrative that Christ really was dead, and he really was buried, and you don't get the resurrection coming out of the tomb unless they put him in. And that is amazingly encouraging to you and me this morning. That our God has an amazing ability to write stories better than we can. And that he's going to use you and he's going to use me in ways that we could not fathom. And he's going to use us uniquely to be a part of this amazing story of redemption that he's writing for his eternal glory. I was in a staff meeting 
uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, the guy who's preaching this sermon at Gateway, his name's Seth Trout, he's one of the pastors there, uh, he said this in our staff meeting, and I was like, hey, are you, is that a line from your sermon? Like, are you really prepared? That was great. <laughs> uh, and he's, he's like, no, I haven't started that, but maybe I'll use it. I was like, you should, because I'm going to. Here you go. So, uh, so by way of Seth Trout, Seth at our staff meeting said, suffering isn't an interruption to ministry, but suffering creates ministry. Right? Like, you don't get this opportunity to bury Jesus if Jesus doesn't suffer and die. Right? Like, so in the suffering and in the death, like, we know resurrection's coming. We don't like to sit in the suffering. We don't like to sit in this moment of death, in that Saturday where it's quiet. But that's where we are. And in the midst of that, God is creating opportunity to use people for his glory. And suffering creates ministry opportunity. Uh, At our Leaders Collective uh, this past month, uh, Marcus was sharing with us the work that you guys are doing in order to love and bless refugees who have been displaced and that are coming into Tucson. They're suffering. You're entering in. Like Christians throughout history, when suffering happens, oftentimes they're the folks who are stepping into the suffering and helping meet the needs of people in a way that loves and blesses and honors the Lord and brings glory to God and images their Savior. And he was saying, you guys are doing that. And you're not only doing it with refugees, but you're doing it with so many other people who are experiencing difficulty in their life. Foster care, adoption, poverty. Like, it's just like the way in which other people are suffering and then God's people here in Tucson are entering in to love and bless those people. That is imaging the Lord. And it's an amazing thing because we are invited into this story. Because oftentimes when we see suffering, we kind of want it to just go away. But it's in the midst of that suffering that God can work and use you and me to further the kingdom, to bless those around us. And I just find that amazingly hopeful. So this morning, I hope that we see that God is not done with you. God is not done with you. Maybe you joined a group like Joseph. You know, and you got, you're like, I'm thinking my way through of how to live my faith here. That's okay. God can write that story. Maybe you had a lot of questions like Nicodemus, and you're like, Jesus, I don't understand. He's still inviting you in. He's still saying, follow me. And maybe you're here for the first time today, and you've heard that when Jesus said, when I've lifted, when I've been lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Christ died for you. And he is alive. And he can save you. And he's inviting all of us to come and follow him. And even in the midst of the burial of Jesus, we see this beautiful truth. That we get to participate in the story that God's writing. We get to live for the glory of the king. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for this truth that's in the scriptures. I thank you for uh, courage and faith and devotion, even in the midst of this moment that is terrible. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us uh, eyes to see where you're at work around us, even in the midst of suffering. Give us faith to believe and courage to have that we would live by faith. And, Father, I pray that we, as uh, a redemption church, would love and bless your name in the midst of Arizona for your kingdom and your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.